Welcome to the Let's Think About That podcast where we don't just react. We'll break it down and think about it. We're going to talk news, the law, sports, whatever we're thinking about. We're your hosts, Ed Yeager and Lee Allen. Lee, how are you, my friend? I am well, Ed. Hope you are. I am, and we had a great opportunity recently to talk with a real climate scientist, a real expert in uh, climate change. We spoke with uh, a, a Georgia Tech professor emeritus, no, a Georgia Tech professor emeritus, uh, Dr. Judith Curry. She spent over 20 years at Georgia Tech, has just excellent credentials. And uh, we'll go to that interview in a second, but just want to get your preliminary thoughts about that, Lee. Well, you're, you're right. And you found her and, and kudos to you for, for arranging that. Um, she has a book that came out in June. Um, it's available on Amazon. Um, quite readable. Um, broken up into short segments that explains um, sort of the uh, background, if you will, and the scientific basis for what really is going on with, with it says climate, but it's temperature um, in our world and what's causing it, more likely what's not causing it, um, and, and then what to do about it and how, how, how we should respond. I was fascinated. I was too. Let's, let's play that interview now. Okay, we're happy to be joined today by Dr. Judith Curry, Professor Emeritus with Georgia Tech and a true climate scientist. And thank you for being here today, Dr. Curry. My pleasure. With uh, climate change seeming to be in the headlines almost every day, something we've talked about several times here on the pod, and we wanted to talk with a real expert about it. I noted that you're also, uh, you have decades of research in this area, but your uh, most recent book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk, directly addresses the climate change phenomenon and tries to sort out the truth from the fiction about it. So if it's possible, we could just start there. I would noted that the subtitle of your book is Rethinking Our Response. And I just wonder first, is climate change really the existential threat that we keep hearing from the left? And then whether it is or not, how do we rethink our response? Okay, well, the public gets exposed to a lot of apocalyptic rhetoric that is, in fact, carefully crafted spin. It has little basis in our scientific understanding. Even the UN climate assessment reports don't use that kind of rhetoric. The bottom line is that we have, and this is the main theme of my book, is that we've badly mischaracterized the risk from climate change, not just the politicians, but even the scientists. Um, First, we've oversimplified both the climate change problem and its solutions. We've mischaracterized both the problem and solution as irreducibly global. We've allowed a single policy solution of eliminating human-caused greenhouse gas emissions to frame the scientific problem and the risks. Natural climate variability is all but ignored, and warming's assumed to be dangerous. We've conflated the incremental risks from the slow creep of warming with the emergency risks of extreme weather events which have little or nothing to do with the warming. 
we fail to recognize that what has been cast as a global crisis is for the most part thousands of local vulnerability emergencies that are revealed by extreme weather events. And finally, climate change and extreme weather have been characterized mistakenly as something that we can control by reducing emissions. So there are all sorts of incorrect assumptions, um, many of which are hidden <laughs> behind all this. And there are some big political agendas behind this whole thing. Um, you know, back in 1992, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change um, had a treaty to prevent dangerous anthropogenic climate change. And this was in 1992, before there was any evidence of, of any warming that could in any way be attributed to um, human-caused climate change. So right from the beginning, this has all been about politics. Following up on that last comment, that it's all been about politics, is the motivation just to gain power and use that uh, climate change um, apocalyptic prediction merely as a vehicle to gain power? Well, there's a lot of different agendas in play. You, re you really have to go back to the 1980s and the UN Environmental Program. You know, the UN has a big sort of globalist agenda, you know, looking for... Um, non-governmental world control, an environmental agenda, an anti-capitalist agenda, uh, even an anti-democratic one. So, so these forces were in play that stimulated the original treaty and the original buy-in. But then you, you got a lot of um, indirect support you know, big business said, well, we can make money off of this. And scientists say, well, this is a great, you know, we can get lots of research funding. And there's been this sort of <laughs> feedback loop, if you will, between the politics, business, and the scientists that have exacerbated this whole thing. And then you get you know, the media desire for clickbait and alarming headlines and you know, that there are many, many cultural forces in play at this point that have little to do with science and certainly aren't very rational. I, I want to go back just, just a moment, I think, because talking about the rhetoric, very interesting. Uh, it, and in your book, you had a section where you talked about what we know is true. Um, and and I, I, don't, I don't want to summarize that too much, but, but I think that you would acknowledge there has been some warming. Yes. Uh, but the question is the degree of that, but also the degree to which humans caused it and the degree to which it can be um, mitigated or some other action taken as, as well as the cost. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, the, OK, everybody agrees that the temperature has been warming since about 1860, that humans are emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide has an infrared emission specter that acts to warm the planet. I mean, nobody questions those three points. However, those facts don't tell us about the most consequential issues. Um, these include how much of the recent warming is caused by anthropogenic emissions, how the climate of the 21st century will play out, 
whether warming is dangerous and whether uh, drastically reducing emissions will overall support human well-being in the 21st century. All of those most consequential issues are what the debate is about. No, I was just going to ask, what is anthrop- uh, anthropogenic warming? What does that mean? That's human-caused warming. I mean, it's, I uh, it's a $20 word that the UN, that, that that's how the UN Climate Change Treaty is formulated in context of anthropogenic warming. But it's really human-caused warming. <laughs> you had an interesting section in your book um, dealing with or touching upon the consensus around COVID-19 and kind of the interplay with scientific consensus with regard to climate change. Can you explain your, your, your thesis? Well, you know, COVID, I have a number of sections in the book that include something about COVID because it's a very interesting um, comparison with the climate change issue. I mean, the, the whole climate change thing is playing out over decades, but we had the whole, the COVID thing playing out on the time scale of, you know, a couple of years. So all of this was drastically accelerated. Again, it's an exceedingly complex problem. Um, great deal of uncertainty. We really don't know how to make predictions. It's ambiguous in terms of there's a lot of different values in play. Some people focusing on safety and precaution, others emphasizing freedoms. Um, in terms of <clears throat> in terms of the idea of consensus, um, one of the most interesting things was that in March of 2020, you know, when we barely knew anything about all this other than that people were dying, um, a group of scientists wrote authoritative essays. One was published in Nature, the other in, I think, the New, New England Journal of Medicine. And they declared a consensus that this was natural origins, that it was not human caused. It did not come from a lab. And it was very emphatic. And any, you know, subsequent to that, um, there were anybody who, you know, people who were questioning and talking about, could this have a lab origin? Um, these people were canceled from social media. They were ostracized by the community that, you know, approved government research grants. A few people even lost their jobs. Um, but within a year, <laughs> this so-called consensus fell apart when you know a few reporters dug in and, and found that the author, the originator <laughs> of these letters had funded the lab research in Wuhan. And he was concerned about his own potential culpability. So there was, you know, a massive conflict of interest here. And so the interesting thing was not that a, a consensus was overturned, but that a fake consensus with essentially no evidence uh, was enforced for over a year. And so we, we see some of those kinds of dynamics going on with regards to climate change in terms of, you know, this consensus is like religious dogma and it's a manufactured 
consensus. It's not a natural scientific consensus. It's a consensus of scientists that was manufactured at the request of the policymakers. You know, you know, so, you know, it's, it's, it's again, politics again behind it. There's a great deal of uncertainty. I mean, like I said, we can agree on some things, but there's a great deal of uncertainty about the most consequential issues and claiming that there's a consensus on everything, including danger and on and on it goes. I mean, they've just way overplayed their hand. I like that analogy to religious dogma because it does feel like that at some point that we're dealing with religious, you could say believers or religious zealots, whatever they might be. But particularly going back to the apocalyptic idea that you've had, and it seems to me that's been around for a while. And I was I was thinking back, it must have been like 40 years ago, I was in school and I had to write a paper on a current events topic. And I remember it was acid rain because back then it was going to be acid rain that killed us all. Um, and I also remember when climate change was global warming, global warming was going to kill us all. And somewhere in between there, they were talking about a new ice age. So there seems to have been some climate threat constantly. And no matter what it was, humans couldn't adapt. Humans couldn't solve it. Humans were the problem. And we were all going to die from it. And now it's just something else, it seems like. Well, in, you know, in the 16th century in Europe, people drowned witches. They blamed them for bad weather. Okay. And the pagans sought to appease the gods for causing bad weather, you know, by various kinds of sacrifices. So there's something, you know, in the human psyche that wants to blame us um, for bad weather. Um, You know, humans do have an influence on the climate in some way, but compared to the, 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 natural climate variability and the many different large forces that are in play here. I mean, this is not um, the dominant factor. And we, and, but the more important issue is even though we do influence climate, we can't control it. So thinking that we can get rid of bad weather by eliminating fossil fuel emissions is, is much worse than a fairy tale. We hear this word in the last few years, sustainability, um, a lot. And you talk in your book about the sustainability trap. Can you expound on that for us? Um, Yeah, sustainability implies some sort of equilibrium, some sort of stasis. Well, the climate and the weather are never stable. I mean, there's no equilibrium. It's always changing. Um, population is increasing. I mean, we now have about 8 billion people on the planet. Of course, they're going to have some impact on the environment. So, so trying to, you know, pretend that we don't have 8 billion people and that we can maintain some sort of constant equilibrium, again, is another fairy tale. Um, there's, I mean, of, of course, we don't want to have an unnecessarily large footprint on the planet. Um, but there's no avoiding, you know, a substantial footprint from 8 billion people. So the, the better strategies 
in my opinion, are associated with resilience. We need to be able to bounce back from adverse weather and climate conditions or better yet, bounce forward um, and, you know, build back better, so to speak. So, and economic development, I mean, the more um, countries that can develop economically, they're going to reduce their vulnerability to um, adverse weather and climate conditions. So it's the idea of resilience and thrivability that I think is a, a better paradigm than sustainability for how humans should engage with their environment. We had another climate scientist on maybe six or eight months ago um, who was of a similar mindset and, and would certainly be in agreement with everything you've said. Um, but I have to say that, quite frankly, it's it's been like a tidal wave pushing this idea of climate change, uh, I, I suppose, throughout the scientific community, but certainly through the culture and with younger people. So I guess I'm just wondering about you as, as someone decades of experience doing this, where do you go from here and how do you build on what the truth is? Well, my company, Climate Forecast Applications Network, you know, I work with clients, mostly in the private sector, but some government clients to help them understand and manage their climate climate risks. Um, so, you know, I think the way to, you know, the, this whole top-down UN solution um, it's just totally the wrong way to approach this. I mean, it's all these emissions targets and temperature targets um, are fairly arbitrary and meaningless. Um, and the policies that um, they're trying to, you know, associated with renewable energy, particularly wind and solar, is just not workable. We're not, we're not going to have enough energy and it's going to be unreliable and it's going to be too expensive. This is a solution to nothing. And we're going to increase our vulnerability if we don't have adequate and inexpensive energy supplies. So we're, we're, we're just making the whole situation worse with these net zero kind of targets and insistence on wind and solar power. I particularly liked your um, your comment that in 50 years or so, we may look back on the the UN approach as something akin to chemotherapy for a head cold. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I thought that was really good. Yeah, it, it, thank you. Um, well, it, it goes back to the precautionary principle. I mean, the precautionary principle, I mean, sure, caution you know, is sort of a common sense kind of rule. Precaution is when there's scientific uncertainty. And the precautionary principle says to get rid of, get rid of whatever might potentially cause the problem. <laughs> well, you know, and this has led us to policies where the so-called cure is worse than the disease, because if we don't have adequate um energy supplies, we're going to be far more vulnerable to whatever extreme weather and climate events that Mother Nature might throw at us. Yeah, that's a that's a great last point. I, I don't have any other questions. I, I'll defer to Lee. I, I just it strikes me, though, with what you said, that that is that is a danger because we've seen politicians talk about having, you know, uh, all electric vehicles, all electric fleets. Some states are phasing out 
internal combustion engines. Um, there was even one politician who talked about the army would have all electric tanks. And that's certainly scary when we're talking about national defense. Um, well, here's the issue. Um, transitioning away from fossil fuels does make sense, but over the course of the 21st century, not by 2030. Um, electric vehicles may be a good solution, but using other um, synthetic liquid fuels may turn out to be a better solution. We don't know. The point is, is we need to try all these things, you know, have lots of little experiments with different countries and different industries trying different things. Um, you know, I think we want to reimagine our 21st century infrastructure so that we're going to be better off, you know, in terms of our water management, our energy supplies, our our physical buildings. I mean, let's rethink all that and try to move, you know, in a direction that's going to use fewer resources, be better for the environment. I mean, these are all things that people can agree on. Where we get into trouble is with these crazy deadlines, okay, by 2030 or whatever. And then what you're stuck with is using technologies that you already have. Well, we can't wait for nuclear power and those new generation four modular designs and everything. We can't wait for that. It's so urgent. We know how to put up wind turbines. Well, that's, that's an ecological and economic disaster. Um, so it just leads to this urgency leads us to the wrong solutions. Uh, I don't really have anything else. I'm just curious. Is your book out? Has it been with yet? Oh, yeah, it was published. Um, the book, my book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk, was published on June 6th. Um, it's being translated into German and French and a couple of other languages. Um, it's it's doing pretty well. I'm very gratified by the reception that the book has gotten. But, yes, you can get it on Amazon, Um and apparently Barnes and Noble and a number of um, other outlets. So yeah, it's, it's readily available. Kindle um, paperback and hardcover. We're working on an audio book also. Lee, you know, I was reminded again that what I found so interesting was that Dr. Curry doesn't take an extreme position that there's no such thing as climate change. She doesn't take an extreme position that climate change is an existential threat to us all. She says, yes, there's certain things that it's certainly uh, corroborated and we agree on, but there's a question of balance. And what do we do to our society as a result of some of these climate extremists? Exactly. Do you, do you sort of like my grandmother used to say, do you cut your nose off to spite your face? Um, you know, she says, and, and the data backs her that, Temperature has been rising since about 1860. Uh, clearly, there was no internal combustion engine in 1860. Uh, and, and she thinks that we need a number of different approaches uh, by various, what I would call, political jurisdictions uh, that can pick and choose from among the known options and the unknown. I mean, we need people working on this to come up with other solutions to see what works for them such that we might know what, what works for a, a, a larger constituency, if you will. Uh, and that it's not panic time. 
it's and she almost she didn't say this is in my words, but it's almost like she viewed that as an opportunity um, to expand our technological capabilities in our by, by searching for some sort of uh, correct and uh, what's the word I'm looking for um, pinpointed response to whatever uh, we, the the human humankind might have an opportunity to use to, to, to change or slow down the warming of, of the earth, if that's even possible. And maybe the answer is we don't, we can't. Well, it could be. And, and I think some aspects of that are evolving technology um, and working for the next generation and not trying to skip five generations and move into an unproven technology, which we're seeing in a lot of, supposed solutions to this problem. That's right. But she also talked about evaluating the risk and mitigation strategies as well as remediation strategies. So, um, you know, the idea of the earth warming by one degree over 50 years through which people can adapt is different from the idea that we're, we've got two years before we all burn up, which is what you want to hear from some people. Right. And she talks about, in the book, and, and she touched on it in our interview, this uh, these made up deadlines, um, and and that doesn't help anyone, particularly those who are um, who, who seem to be most concerned with finding a solution quickly. You know, when you say we've got, you know, Al Gore said, "Well, we had twelve years or something to right. to solve it." That was fourteen or fifteen years ago. And it's interesting you mentioned that because in the interview, Dr. Curry talked about the UN treaty in uh, 1992, which she referred to as being about politics, uh, because I had actually gone back and I was trying to remember what Al Gore had done. And, and that was an interesting year. 1992 was also when he put out the book, um, which was followed 14 years later in 2006 when the movie Inconvenient Truth came out. Um, and now we're some, you know, 17 years beyond that. Right. And he and Greta Thunberg or whatever her name is can keep, you know, shrieking and, and it doesn't accomplish anything positive and it hurts even their position. Well, again, we want to thank Dr. Curry for her time. Uh, she was very gracious and we certainly appreciated her expertise on this subject. We did. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Let's Think About That podcast. You can email us at comments at letsthinkpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed the show, click subscribe with your podcast provider, leave us a review, send us an email, and tell your friends. Mm-hmm.